on today's episode of The Wilds Cast. Joining me now, Michael Wilds. He's a former federal prosecutor, now an immigration attorney, and one of his clients, in fact, is our first lady, Melania Trump. Next, I'm joined from New York by Michael Wilds, a former federal prosecutor here in the United States. Out front now, first lady Melania Trump's immigration lawyer, Michael Wilds. He's also the author of Safe Haven in America, Battles to Open the Golden Door. Michael, thanks for joining us. You helped the president. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. You're in for a real treat today, and that's because in this episode, Rabbi Wilds interviews his brother, Michael. Michael is a law professor, an immigration attorney, a volunteer EMT, and the mayor of Englewood, New Jersey. The two brothers had a fascinating conversation about the coronavirus, the Black Lives Matter movement, among a whole host of other topics. Their sibling rivalry and their love for each other shine through during this really intriguing interview. So, without further ado, here are the Wilds Brothers. Okay, hello everyone, and this is a very, very special treat for me. Uh, I am the kid younger brother who has now the opportunity to interview his older brother. Uh, I'm going to uh, read my brother's bio, which is quite extensive and impressive. And I'm not jealous just because I'm his younger brother, but this is a real zuchut and honor for me to be able to have a conversation with my brother about his amazing, a lot of different things. We're going to get into it very soon. So Michael Wilds is the managing partner with leading immigration firm called Wilds and Weinberg. He's an adjunct professor at the Benjamin Cardoza School of Law uh, in New York, uh, and he teaches uh, business immigration law and externship and part of the field clinic faculty. He's also a former federal prosecutor with the United States Attorney's Office. I remember when he did that. And he's the author of a wonderful book called Safe Haven in America, Battles to Open the Golden Door. Uh, he was representing uh, the United States government in immigration proceedings, and he is now a frequent participant on professional panels. He's a commentator on network television. Uh, many times I'll just be flipping around the boob tube and all of a sudden there's my brother on TV. Um, he has testified on Capitol Hill in connection with anti-terrorism legislation and has done really extraordinary things for this country. Uh, Michael's boutique law firm specializes exclusively in the practice of U.S. immigration nationality law and was, of course, established by our dear and beloved father, Yibadel Chaim. He should live and be well. Our dad, Leon Wiles, established this firm back in 1960. My dad uh, represented for many, many years, uh, some of the most successful celebrities um, and uh, professionals, including uh, John Lennon in his widely publicized deportation proceedings. And more than 50 years since its inception, uh, Wilds and Weinberg continues to serve a very distinguished domestic and international clientele, covers all areas of US immigration law. Just to give you a little idea, some of my brother's recent clients include the First Lady, Melania Trump, um, uh, famed artist Sarah Brightman, Lionel Richie, Boy George, many of the former Miss Universes, as well as soccer icon Pele, uh, many other talented artists as well. And my brother also happens to be the mayor of Englewood, New Jersey, a very proud, committed Jew who also uh, volunteers for Hatzalah, uh, saves lives each and every day. And I want to just begin 
by welcoming you, Michael, and wishing you a mazel tov on the two major smachot, happy occasions in our family. Uh, the wedding of my niece, of your daughter, Lauren, and mazel tov also on the birth of your first grandchild. Um, and it should just be with mazel and bracha to, uh, to Josh and to Vicky. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Lovely to talk to you formally and to know that our dear parents' legacy is continuing and that we can share some of the anecdotes and story with your uh, community, your Kila is wonderful. Obviously, the most extraordinary part of that ridiculously puffed up bio is the last part um, in having a grandchild and Lauren Ruth, our third child, uh, married. Um, our father, Tibadah L'chaim, should continue to live on. He's 87 years young and making us uh, both proud uh, every single day. There isn't a day that we don't have a chance to speak to him and seek his wise counsel. And our mother, rest her soul, while she passed when she was only 56 years young, is probably the only reason that you and I are successful in our own space because she was a Meilitz Yosher, an advocate for both of us loving us dearly. Of course, she may have loved me a little more than you, but with good therapy, I think you did a good enough job getting over it, right? Um, you know, not yet. I'm still in, in the process. Why did you constantly throw me into the living room? You um, had it, you had it, you had it, you had it coming. Mom had this white carpet, everyone. And if you stepped on it, it was a ticket to hell. And uh, it was just, you were a sitting duck minding your own business. And it just seemed like uh, the right thing to do. And, yeah, and I have one other pet peeve I'd like to air publicly. Sure, uh, by all means. Shabbos, you know, th those long Shabbos afternoons, I'm sitting there minding my own business. I was a very studious young, you know, man, and I'd just be minding my own business. And you would burst into my room, walk over to my shelves, and just pull something off the shelf and say, hey, <laughs> didn't we trade for this? And I'm like, no, we didn't trade for That's mine. Leave it alone. And then it would be gone. How do yeah. you explain yourself? There's always two sides to a story, and I don't know what world you live in, but with the right medication, I think that will come out at some point, <laughs> or some therapy session. But uh, okay. Shabbos, was, uh, Shabbos was wonderful. You should know that our parents used to send us in the backyard with uh, a pail of water and a paintbrush and say, <laughs> now paint the entire house. So an hour and a half later, we'd come back in. Our father would throw a slipper at us and you know, while he was taking his nap and say, put a second coat on it. And uh, that was how we used to spend our Shabbosim back in the day. That's how you keep your kids uh, busy. All right. Let's get into some stuff here, Michael. Uh, you're the mayor. This is your second term as mayor of Englewood, New Jersey. Third. Um, I got who's counting? Oh, this is your third term? Yeah, yeah. I did two before. I took a break for 10 years. And uh, but, but continue. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I put the first two as one. I apologize. It's not that I'm not proud. So... What is it like running a city during a pandemic? Um, tell us a little about how the community was hit and what restrictions you had to create to keep your citizens safe. And and if you can comment a little on how maybe you're starting to open up, uh, we'd love to hear that. Happy to. And first, I should say, all kidding aside, I am perhaps one of the proudest brothers in the world, known, being known as Mark's brother is a badge of courage. I would put it on top of my yarmulke as it's one of the best accolades. And I tip my hat to you with all kidding aside, Mark, you're one of the greatest leaders the Jewish community has. And in the tri-state area, go-to person. And I admire the way you've stepped up in a tremendous uh, tradition to help be there for your community despite the pandemic. 
Uh, being a mayor in a in a in a in the middle of a historic time is really a, a big privilege. Um, there was no handbook, there was no training, um, and we just went in and did a deep dive every day of my life for a full hour, even on Shabbat or holidays. I spend my time uh, in uh, a round robin phone call with my police chief, my fire chief, our office of emergency management, council president. Um, health director, and we do a rendition on everything that's important for making sure that food is served properly in our shop rights and that people social distance from one another, uh, that elderly people can get tested and uh, can get the medical treatment that they need, that houses of worship are able to communicate uh, with their parishioners uh, properly, and that uh, health, medical, police, and fire services are delivered, enter into it uh, social unrest and uh, the protests uh, that have uh, now uh, pervaded our nation uh, it adds another uh, level. But we are uh, fortunate um, to have very strong leaders. Um, Englewood, New Jersey is a bedroom community to Wall Street, historically um, known as a city literally with a track between the haves and the have-nots. And I've done everything that I can and continue to work to eviscerate this uh, divide, knowing, of course, that and every day of the weekend from Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, there are people of all faiths uh, praying uh, and uh, that we live in a community uh, of great um, depth and human resource uh, and just some of the most extraordinary uh, persons that I've ever met from Tuskegee Airmen who served the nation at a time when the nation turned its back on them, the Holocaust survivors uh, that have now been able to uh, find a, a home in a city of great diversity. And, uh, you know, it's not easy uh, to cater to all the interests and needs. Do you open up tennis when you can't open up a basketball as we come out of this comatose? Those are the light decisions. The heavier decisions uh, have a lot to do uh, with shutting down um, medical and food and also the, all other distribution networks uh, that may create uh, the contagion to expand itself. And each season is now bringing on uh, new challenges. But we are uh, very fortunate to have good leaders, and my job has been uh, made easy with communications uh, and technology that makes it uh, so that I don't have to be everywhere at the same time, but can opine and decide as needed. And how, how are you guys, thank you, how are you guys opening, um, like give us a little just um, a sense of how you're opening and trying to do it in a way obviously that's not going to bring about another you know spike in this which is happening in some parts of the country so despite the fact that the governor has um, extended executive orders we are taking it even slower we're not opening um, as quickly we're allowing our restaurants to uh, expand onto our streetscape only if their neighbors permit it and if they maintain social distancing uh, it's very important that we maintain a footing whether it's six feet between uh, pedestrians and an older aging uh, community in the central business district and we're going uh, piecemeal uh, we're not allowing um, sport games uh, and we had to take down the basketball uh, nets and the uh, swings because there was too many uh, people that are acting irresponsibly and uh, the notion that you have to go beyond what's required Din came out on many occasions as I had to explain to different parts of the community what proper conduct by the CDC would be acceptable. 
and even to admonish people in our own community who were taken for granted. There were five girls um, walking outside of my home, and I had to then call the rabbi and each of their fathers up because they didn't realize how irresponsible their communications with one another at a time of uh, social distancing could um, generate a threat uh, to the grandparents that were residing in their homes. Uh, leading by example is the notion of keeping on message and making sure that you make wise decisions based on facts and science. And in many ways, we're going uh, to open, but we're opening very slowly as we see second waves spreading throughout the nation. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and you, you made reference to this, so I guess I'll pick up on it. But, you know, Englewood has not only a large Jewish population, but a large African-American uh, population as well. So tell us a little with the terrible incident uh, killing of George Floyd. Um, I assume there were protests. How did they go? Um, did any become, turn into riots? How do you deal with that as a mayor? And what could we in the Jewish community be doing to help our neighbors and strengthen our neighbors in the black community and deal with racism in America? If, if you believe fundamentally that slavery is the greatest stain in our nation's history, then you decide to get elected and you succeed in three terms as a city mayor. It's going to be because you spent a lot of time with your brothers and sisters of color. And you learn that the experience that you and I had growing up and driving late at night is not the experience that they have and that the culture has changed over time. You know, I had the privilege of being a, f a federal prosecutor and before that an auxiliary police officer and a Boy Scout vantage point on law enforcement. And I have to tell you that I believe police officers and law enforcement to be the most noble of all work to do. But somehow white supremacists throughout the nation seem to have permeated uh, that veil and that there is an acceptable level of racism that has remained in its ranks and may even be uh, within our region. I believe all my officers, all rank and file from our chief deputy chief downward to all be of the greatest magnitude of character, all men and women in blue, even my bravest in the fire department and ambulance service. But, you know, as our dad always taught us to write with a pencil because we never perfected, we practice law. We never perfected it. We learned from our mistakes. We have to do a double down. We've had protests the last three Saturdays on Shabbat. Um, there will be a new one this Saturday. Thankfully, they've all been peaceful. I'm going to be meeting with the progenitor of one protest. I've already spoken at great length to the leaders of another. Um, you have to be very delicate and you have to listen. I will uh, later attend a flag raising at Juneteenth by our monument. And again, I serve in a city where there were Tuskegee Airmen. Imagine the bombardiers of World War II who liberated our relatives in the concentration camps. And they came back to Englewood, New Jersey, and they couldn't drink from the same water fountains and eat in the same restaurants. The lack of dignity still pervades itself in many parts of the Black community. And that experience reminds us that not just Black lives matter, but the human dignity and the humanity that we deliver to people must be poignant and practical. And are we creating a venue for young children to become leaders, mayors, police chiefs in the community? Do they have the same economic vantage point? And if they don't, what can we, and I mean we as Jews, we as Americans, create a better environment 
so that this becomes a thing of the past. In our rearview mirror are icons like Dr. King. But I have to tell you, in recent uh, weeks, I met with Nelson Mandela's grandson, who became a client of our office. And the tradition of that next generation of leadership is one that we have to take responsibly. And the best way to handle it is truthfully to sit down and listen. We cannot pivot every time we hear a black affliction and say, well, we had the Holocaust, that's more serious. You can't debate whether or not slavery of 400 years is, is worse or better than the Holocaust. We just have to realize that there's a common experience of suffering and that people of faith or people of fate have to reckon with it and go together to fix the broken system and to make sure we weed out the bad apples. And that's the challenge ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And do you think there's sufficient, Michael, do you think that, let's say within Englewood, and I don't know how representative Englewood is of other cities, uh, do you think there's a real, you know, I just did an interview with a couple of uh, important black leaders, a reverend from Stanford, Connecticut, and, um, and the uh, Brooklyn Assemblyman from, um, from, from Brooklyn, uh, Eric Adams. Uh, do you think there's enough dialogue going on between the Jewish and black communities? I think there's dialogue in the older uh, constituency. There's a new generation every seven years. I think the millennials have to start talking to one another. I think, you know, I, I have to tell you that I remember a Shabbat in my home when our father blessed us after we um, had said the Kiddush over wine. And then he blessed my son and the pastor turned to me and I had invited him to join us and said, I didn't know who my father was. My people need a Shabbat. And I realized at a very young age, I suppose, because of the home that we grew up in, not to take for granted the time that we have with our family, but to extend that kind of experiment and experience uh, to other uh, people of faith. And people of color bring color to your life. Um, I spend a lot of time uh, in the churches in our community. And I don't just go for a picture or to say something and leave. And I've developed the trust so that when I have wonderful occasions in my family, I'll not just call you for a good thought from the Bible or Torah, but I'll call a pastor and ask him for a thought as well. When we realize that there's so much that binds us and that we have in common, then the experience of suffering and the way we deal with our suffering is something that we have to deal with. And there isn't a pastor that I've spoken to that is in some way said that the looting and the crime that evolved in the recent weeks was in any way acceptable. If anything, it hurt the message of what Mr. Floyd's uh, death uh, brought to the conversation in America culture. And we have to make sure that we, of all faiths and all rank, bring it back to the table. Yeah, well, I appreciate you, you mentioning the last line as well, because there seems to be, you know, MG is a pretty broad community and, um, much of our constituency is really up in arms and really upset and wants to get involved with Black Lives Matter. Um, but another group within our community is also concerned that there's been a little of whitewashing of some of the violence and that it's been, I don't know, somehow accepted as a legitimate uh, form of, of protest. Uh, there was a police officer in New York City um, who uh, was, was hit in the face with brass knuckles simply because he was a cop. And, uh, you know, some are complaining that there's not enough of an outcry, that, of course, we should take to the streets and protest what, what happened uh, to George Floyd. But 
but it has to be done in a way which is, as you said, is not going to taint an otherwise noble uh, movement. Um, and I, I'm just, you know, that whatever. I'm not. It's not really a question. I just think it's it's definitely an issue that's going on. It's it's um, it's it, it's hard for me to explain to my Jewish brothers and sisters uh, that the looting is not indicative of a community um, that is hurting. And if you remove that piece of it, it's very easy for people to connect. Um, and the frustration that a community has that would, would cause itself harm is something that we have to appreciate uh, as well. There is a different way of venting that every community has. Um, but the thing that is most impactful is the communities that are being destroyed are communities where people live. There are proprietors that are owners of businesses. The, the Bergen County Executive is now going to be giving grants of money to small businesses up to $10,000 to non-essential businesses because they were hurting in the middle of a pandemic. Imagine looting across the nation in areas of color where now it's going to be more expensive for people of color to actually buy groceries and food products because it got totally trashed. Right. But I want you to understand criminals are criminals. As a former federal prosecutor, I don't see color when it comes to criminals. I, on television, could see people of all color who saw the crime as an opportunity, and they didn't care about the message that was being lost. Now, that has a lot to do with their priorities, with education of our culture and our community. And unless we do a deep dive into reforming, reprioritizing, and setting up systems within our nation so that we do not respond this way, so that messages are carried with the excellence that Dr. King espoused. I mean, I, I, I remember uh, this past uh, February, January, going into a church and citing one of uh, King's most famous uh, comments. He spoke to a street sweeper and said, if you sweep a street, sweep it with the excellence of a Rembrandt. To do the best and be the best that you are. And that also resonates in our community too, that we cannot respond in a way that's judgmental because we don't have the experience that they have. We get into a vehicle, we are not fearful of police officers stopping us and that our life may be ended or harmed. And that cultural experience is an unacceptable in the United States of America in the year 2020 for us to have any citizen feeling that. We have to eradicate that. And by the way, the best messengers are our police officers who every day, you know, not only live regally and serve honorably, um, it's just the bad eggs. But the bad eggs pervade departments throughout the uh, nation, and that's really what has to be addressed. Right. Tell You know, you just made reference to uh, being a federal prosecutor. And I remember when you when you had that gig, um, it was a great training for you for becoming a defense attorney uh, in immigration. Can you tell us a little, may, maybe your biggest or favorite, most interesting cases, um, either as a federal prosecutor or later on now in Wilds and Weinberg? Well, I had the privilege of representing um, many government agencies, including the immigration authorities, the FBI, uh, U.S. Army, and so forth, as a prosecutor representing the government. You were placed in a lot of different uh, uh, positions. My office at the time, the criminal division, was prosecuting John Gotti. We were working on the Haitian refugee case. Our father was writing letters against the position of the government that were being published in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times while I was one of the lawyers listed on the uh, table. No, it's, uh, it was a wonderful experience. 
Um, you don't lose your client as a prosecutor and you learn the resources that the government has at its disposal. And it was also one of those noble works and jobs where I was able to help deport drugsters and mobsters and people that would cause harm uh, to us. It gave me a good sense of propriety so that when I left the office, I felt a conflict in trying to help bad people stay in America and developed a sense of um, a new area for our firm to explore. And that was for whistleblowers, that there were cooperators and diplomats and whistleblowers, again, that had information. We represented in the years that I joined uh, the practice, people that I was able to connect to my former associates at the U.S. Attorney's Office that showed us that there were foreign students, clerics and diplomats that were given permission to be in America and were doing things that our founding documents would never have contemplated, that our immigration protocols needed to be tightened up and at the same time to create an entrepreneurial spirit for those two are, that would contribute uh, to stay. But overall, I think working with immigration um, from a prosecution point of view, going on raids and seeing the kind of lack of imagination that our um, federal government had and not cultivating uh, the right talent and giving resource to employers. They effectively shifted the responsibility in 1986 to employers to police immigration. And I saw firsthand how foolish that was. It may have been good during President Reagan's term, but in the new economic normal, punishing employers for not doing the job of the government seemed foolish and foolhardy. And unfortunately, because of the stagnation in Washington and the president now who sees immigration as a political pivot, um, things have gotten worse, not better. So tell me a little since dad, you know, you know, did his work in the in the 70s with John, with John Lennon. And, and you know, you've you've done an extraordinary job, Michael, continuing dad's legacy and bringing Wilde Weinberg and immigration law in general into the 21st century. How have things changed um, from when, let's say, Dad was 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 helping John and fighting Nixon in his deportation proceedings to to what you're doing now? And, and I mean, what are the like the challenges? So, anecdotally, it was a different culture in those days. You didn't have um, search engine optimization. You didn't have the competition we had. Our father was the president of the American Immigration and nationality lawyers, it was the acronym was ANAL, so they decided to change it to American Immigration Lawyers Association. Um, and you had a different kind of culture. There were 400 immigration lawyers. There are over 16,000 uh, uh, now. Um, Ruth in a booth is what the receptionist would call when our dear mother, Alela Shalom, would be calling in from a telephone. And dad was seeing individuals and making case law that I now teach uh, in a law school class that he uh, was my professor in. Uh, it was a different experience and it was really a measure of love. I remember when both of us one summer were in the office and we were pounding on the walls and you said, I can't do these H1B cut and pastes anymore. And I said, go be free, do what you want. I got this. And we all kidding aside, we both love our father dearly. And for Thank me, you for liberating me. <laughs> you know, for me, it didn't matter what dad would do. If he had a restaurant, I guess I'd have a broom in my hand doing this, talking about restaurant, being a restaurateur. I just really wanted to be around him because of the influence. And it was like an older brother to us, the law firm, 
mom said he, she only saw dad in a house coat when he left in the morning and he got home at night. Um, but the 21st century is a different animal. There are 16,000 immigration lawyers and John Lennon is not going to get us clients um, if they can't afford it, if they don't think you're going to return phone calls with a president that's trying to scare the hell out of everybody and foreign students that are saying, I can't onboard myself into the workforce. Think how foolish this is, Mark. We have foreign students come to the United States. We have them pay extraordinary tuition so the school makes money. And the best talent then can't go into the workforce and we have to compete against them in another generation abroad. And America's employers cannot find the talent um, sometimes in the United States. If you look at Bill Gates and the technology sector, the hospitality, who's making the beds, who's picking the blueberries in Georgia, and who's creating the technology that undermines uh, just about uh, you know every sector of the economy. It all comes from foreign labor. And if we realize that our founding documents and our founding parents envisioned a more entrepreneurial spirit and not family, not chain migration, but the notion of family uh, reunification, that people will not only love and work harder when their immediate relatives are there, but that it's purposefully supposed to be confused. Um, but we have, uh, you know, and history is repeating itself. In the 1800s, we had the Chinese. Let, let, me, uh, let me just ask you, yeah. Michael, do you think that the president is enacting uh, whatever immigration reform or change? You know, he's a businessman. So why would he sort of shoot the economy in the foot by 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 placing these restrictions on foreign students? Unless you're saying he's just politics, he's pandering to the right, to his base, which wants to see tighter restrictions. So I'll just give you a snapshot of history, as I was saying before, and I'll answer it. Um, in the 1800s, we needed um, our railroads built from the West Coast to the East Coast. When it was done by the Chinese community, there were so many people. Until the 1960s, there were still Chinese exclusion acts on the books for a good hundred years to get rid of the xenophobia that was created by Chinese laborers in the 18 and 1900s. It's a remarkable experience. Post 9-11, we faced the same experience. People were fearful and be led to believe that foreign nationals, whether it's Fox News or other media, that everybody is a potential criminal or they committed massive crimes and so forth. This president walked in and used this as a wedge point in order to not only get himself elected, but is now trying to push all these buttons. And yes, to your question, this president, a businessman who recognized the world's talent. Look, we did hundreds upon hundreds of visas for the president when it was Trump models, Miss Universe, and so forth. And we earned the trust of his wife. I got citizenship for his in-laws and for um, uh, the president's sister-in-law. Um, I did her green card. He recognizes that the system is there and you need to have talent. Uh, he and, and Jared are espousing a merit-based system like Canada, like Australia. But we have it, Mark. We have the O-1 visa for aliens of extraordinary ability. We have the EB-1, the way uh, Melania was able to achieve a green card. These systems are in place. And it does stand out of character for him. But if he wanted to get elected, these were the buttons that he had to push. What offended me most was getting people scared. The notion that nearly a million young people that are here under DACA relief now, it was because of dad's handling of the Lennon case that the notion of prosecutorial discretion was seen in the world of immigration, that a president would want to shut down nearly a million young people, many of whom graduated Harvard, were, were wonderful nurses and judges and so forth, that they could 
not have a future in the United States as a political pivot is unacceptable to me. Unacceptable as a Jew, unacceptable as an American who understood that when things are bad, now we're facing a pandemic, we need to do a double down and invest in people that would not only be loyal to our flag, but help America pioneer into the next generation. The greatest risk takers, the greatest people that we're dealing with in this experiment have all been immigrants. Immigrants who become citizens and then bring their family and other people in. American employers cannot find some of the world's talent. And with globalization, the internet and technology, they shouldn't have to go far if we can give them more tools to work with. Why remove the biblical straw so they have to make bricks so much harder? And so I, Michael, M Michael, do you do you um, do you feel that sometimes in the Jewish community, particularly in the Orthodox community, there seems to be a little more uh, a conservative um, bent towards immigration? Um, when when perhaps you know, on Dad's office, we still see Zadie's, our father's father's uh, passport from, you know, he came from Bialystok. And uh, uh, do you feel like that Jews who have made it here? are now supportive of the president's policies, which are more restrictive, and therefore it's really kind of antithetical to Jewish values? So I think it's a combination of experiences. I spoke to a client earlier today who worked very hard to get her uh, green card and did not seem to be sensitive to immigrants behind her. It's weird. The Jewish community historically may have always been Democrats, and they may have voted for some Republican here and there, but they never really went off the middle. It's when our community goes to either extreme, the right or the left on the spectrum, that things get dangerous. And you cannot just vote for a president or show support for a president for one issue. Look, I tip my hat because the embassy is in Jerusalem. I appreciate the um, DNA um, instinct that he has for the Jewish community and for the state of Israel. I would expect that of any president. We had that with a lot of Republican presidents, President Bush and his father and so forth. Um, but when it comes to leading this nation and not scaring people and leading in a way that sets standards, I don't feel comfortable uh, with the direction that we were going in with um, this president. And I have to tell you, I also felt the discomfort with President Obama, sadly. He was known as the deporter in chief, having deported more people than any president in history and only wised up the DACA in the last part of his second term. You have to understand that you're writing history uh, as a leader and you can not, for political expediency, change the lives of people without it affecting the national character when it comes to immigration. And the conversation is such that I run as quickly as I can if invited to Fox News every time an immigrant kills somebody because that one exception to the rule, and I'm prayerful that the exception to the rule that killed Mr. Floyd is the same notion that these are just exceptions to the rule and unacceptable to have them. If we create a culture, we have to eviscerate it and we have to make sure that we work towards it. And if in our community, in the Jewish community, there's such a notion um, that devalues um, the immigrant journey, we have to remind ourselves that we are not only people of the passport who biblically sojourned 40 years to get to our promised land, but that we have to be, by biblical edict, um, good to the stranger. It's so much easier, as Rabbi Sachs wrote in my uh, preface to my book, uh, to be good to a friend 
it's so much harder to, to show hachnasis orchim or hospitality uh, to a stranger. And I think it's in that tradition that this country has always made itself stronger. And there are people with accents that are defending our nation abroad and on the streets of our, our, of our cities uh, that come home and they don't speak a lick of English and they pray any one day of the week. And it shouldn't matter to any of us. We should, in the tradition that we have uh, felt, set a stage that's fair. Now, I want you to know, as a former federal prosecutor, I in no way would allow somebody who would cause us harm a safe haven in the United States. But we have to understand that there are multiple shades of gray and that there are moving parts in our lives. But our tradition of keeping a safe haven open uh, to a door, and the, the reason that I chose for my book uh, to be safe haven in America battles to open the golden door. The reason I called it a door was because it sits on a hinge mark open to those that would be the greatest risk takers and entrepreneurs and inventors and shut to those that would cause us harm. It's embarrassing to see how the dialogue has deteriorated in Washington. And what's more embarrassing than the administration's handling of immigration is that Congress can't get itself together to shoot straight either. That makes something bad even worse. I, I definitely appreciate the um, the biblical reference. You know, you, you and I have talked about this over the years, Michael, and dad loves to quote that pasuk, to love the stranger, which is mentioned 36 times in the Torah. I don't know how much part of our liturgy and philosophy and our whole outlook is colored and informed by Yitzhak Mitzrayim, by the Exodus, that we started out as an enslaved people, <clears throat> and we were the ultimate immigrants being chased from country to country. So, you know, it is a little <clears throat> inconsistent, I think, Jewishly, to be, you know, overly restrictive. And, you know, I did a lot of work on the Second World War. I think the greatest, the second greatest stain, perhaps, on this country is the extraordinarily restrictive uh, measures that the United States took in the quota system, allowing a handful of Jews during the Second World War uh, two boatloads, the Strum and the St. Louis of Jewish people sent back to Europe where they perished in the Shoah. Um, so, you know, it, that's why it's difficult. I find it, you know, inconsistent when I, when I have colleagues, rabbinic colleagues or other Orthodox Jews who uh, are so supportive of the president's policies on immigration. But yet, we, when we went through this ourselves. It's, 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 it's upsetting. Uh, to see that and that sense of commonality um, is what I feel with the black community. And um, look, I, I, I had the good fortune to write on Dr. King in high school, college and in law school. And as a, a student of history, uh, we, we know that there's more that binds both communities together. And the greatest traditions we have. It's remarkable when somebody calls me from the Jewish community about their housekeeper and they realize at the very end, the reason they can't keep the person that gave them as much love as their own family members is because of a xenophobia coming from the White House. They're shocked. But even after the issue is cured, they can't get off their love because of one or two issues. We have to expand our hearts. We have to expand our sense of hospitality. I'm not a socialist. I'm not a lefty. I'm right in the middle. And I think we build a better America when we help all of those around us. And it's a merit-based political system 
And the reason we had David Letterman and Janet Carson keeping our parents up at 11 o'clock and 1130 at night was because our country always felt with people from Indiana and Nebraska, that's where they're from, um, very comfortable in the middle. When we go off to the extremes, things happen that are not uh, controlled. And, you know, there are people that are complaining about Black Lives Matter being a political movement that's not uncontrolled, just like the Tea Party was uncontrolled. And we have to just steer on course. And our father spoke at our grandfather's funeral and he compared his dad to a compass that was able to steer the tonnage of a ship in the right derech, in the right direction. One little instrument. And that's what our job is as Jews uh, in this new um, uh, age. And that is to point by example the direction that we ought to head. Uh, let, 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 let me ask you another question, Michael. What, why did you decide to become an EMT many, many years ago? You've been with Hatzalah. For those of you listening or may not be familiar, Hatzalah is an extraordinary volunteer ambulance service that has saved, uh, I mean, countless uh, lives. They respond to both Jews and non-Jews, but it is a Jewish ambulance corp. What, what, um, what motivated you to, to do that? So after scaring the hell out of our parents and becoming an auxiliary police officer, our mom used to bless me every time I went out and I had to wear a bulletproof vest. Um, we were beginning to have children and Google wasn't as pervasive and they don't come with instruction booklets. And I really was scared uh, to have that awesome responsibility of being a parent without knowing and understanding functions and saving uh, lives. And then it just got into my DNA and I've been doing it for over 27 years. I've delivered two children, not my own. Um, I guess you're not an ambulance chaser if you're driving uh, the ambulance. And it's just something part of the notion of tikkun olam and being an example. I, you know, I don't care what color, what age, what faith the person is that I'm saving. Um, I think as an example to other nations, we have to, there's nothing more substantial uh, than the dignity that you give somebody who's not well and the family members in that imme immediate experience. I think each of the experiences I have have made me stronger in the other arenas. As a mayor, I've been a stronger father. As a father, I've been a stronger lawyer. As an EMT, I've been a more sensitive lawyer. And I think if you draw the, the lessons learned, you know, they teach us, Mark, if you find a pencil, God forbid, impaled in somebody, you can do more harm removing it then if you just package properly, maintain airway and go to the uh, hospital. I often use that example when I have clients that have gone to bad lawyers and they come to our office, that my job now is to make sure that I package properly. Uh, so I see the kind of journeys that clients take, the constituents take, the journeys that our parents um, lovingly took with us and all of these life lessons at its core element remind me when I'm doing CPR or I'm charged into somebody's home that nothing matters to that patient other than giving. And I get when I give and I walk out feeling 10 feet tall um, when I do a good deed. And it's my prayer that the person obviously makes it and that I don't cause more harm than good that was done. Um, but it's made me a stronger American a Jew and father, um, and that's why I do it and keep doing it, and I can't shake it. And let me, let me ask you, Michael, thank you. That's really beautiful. Uh, I just think this is such a, a 
important model to put out there. You know, you're mayor, an attorney, a professor, and you're, and I can just tell you as your brother, you're an awesome parent and husband and family person. Uh, and we saw that in our, our own home. But if there's, you know, um, I just think that's a lot of people struggle with that. A lot of uh, MGE participants listening to this, watching this are in their 20s and 30s and they're ambitious. They want to accomplish. They want to get, they want to, you know, be someone in their field. What would you say to, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 year old who's embarking on their profession and career, but is really reticent to maybe take that step forward, um, you know, to, to get married and start having a family. How do you how do you try to do it all? So I have the privilege of teaching two classes now um, in Cardozo Law School every semester, and they asked me to teach a summer course. And it's the first time I'm doing it on a Zoom. And it's very hard to connect with people through electronic medium. But it is the new way of being able to connect, particularly not only in a pandemic, but because the new technology and the new generation are using this technology and they can find comfort and love and security in ways that you and I found it differently. I remember when I was 14 years old and Irving Schoen passed away. It was our grandfather's best friend. Our grandfather passed away when I was six weeks old. I don't remember him and you never had the chance to meet him and you're named after him. And here I had just learned some rules and he had passed away and it was on a Shabbos. And somebody said to me, we don't know what to do. They came to the house. And I said, I do. And I went over. And I remember it like it was yesterday. The body itself could not be touched. On Shabbos, I had to put a piece of bread on it. It became something that you could then move in a certain way. And I did what I had to do in order to show respect. There are no pockets in the shrouds that bury us. So everything we take with us, our memories, our favorite music, our best shoes, our suits, our ties, our money, none of it's coming with us. And I'm reminded of that with Hatzalah. What we leave are the lessons learned and imbued in our children. Our children are going to do what we do, not what we say. So when you realize that at a very young age of 14, you love your father and he put his life into helping foreigners come to America in a golden tradition. And then you begin to realize you have deep shoes to fill if you're going to make it and you want to sustain yourself so that you have a law practice that you can run even from your own personal cockpit in your household. You're going to do it based on a good name. And I would say to people in their 20s and 30s, work as hard as your good rabbi and his father. Try to make a good name for yourself, reminding yourself not only of the experience you have in your rearview mirror, but where we're heading is not something that you're going to put into a bank and take with you, but it's going to be a good name. And the ruling out of things that you're mutely interested in is the way you'll find the things in life that you'll dedicate yourself. Just make sure that you dedicate yourself in your 20s and 30s to not just making a buck, but helping yourself in a spiritual sense, making something insignificant and conventional more meaningful and set yourself up so that your love life balance allows personal growth. The biggest decision my law students will take are not going to be what area of law 
or when when they're going to hit a certain law firm or or figure in their bank account, but who they're going to marry because that right person will make them feel ten feet tall. They'll write a book one day and they'll be able to teach another generation of their life experience. But I hope in the end that people will be reminded that it's the little daily things that you do, and that means running into somebody's home when there's an emergency that is the most impactful because you'll improve and keep somebody alive and you'll be all the more richer for it. I don't know if that answers a 20 and a 30 year old, but sometimes you have to kind of look back, pull the lens back on the landscape and say, where did I come from? Where am I now? And where do I want to be? What do I want to be reminded and remembered for? And what do I want to accomplish? That's a very powerful message. And maybe we'll close with that because, uh, you know, it's so hard in your 20s and 30s to make it in New York City. And you have to really put full throttle, just throw yourself into your profession. But it's so great to think about down the road, what do I want to leave this world with? And to, to be able to say, I want to leave the world leaving children with the right kinds of values. And you know that we started MGE, Michael in mom's memory, because she was so passionate about Yiddishkeit and she bestowed and, and shared that passion with you and with me, with, with our whole family. We are who we are religiously today because of her. And we started MGE in her memory to perpetuate her, we always talk about her expanding Shabbat table. Uh, she always used to, uh, this will be interesting, she, she used to call my brother over in shul next to the mechitza and say, hey, who is that guy over there? He looks new and he looks single. Let's invite him over for lunch. Who can we can who can we fix him up with? There's a young woman over here. I don't know if she has a place. When I started the beginner service, which was the precursor to MGE, she would take home all the people. So this is something you and I grew up with to really be focused on family and Yiddishkeit and Torah and Judaism and being able to to, you know, one day after 120 leave this world in a much better place than we found it. I leave but, but, body. Let, let me let me interrupt yeah. for a second. Anecdotally, you know, I named my daughter Lauren Ruth Pesel Abigail after her mom. Yeah. Um, and we had a granddaughter two weeks ago. And my son then named his daughter after our mom too. I never had a conversation with my son Josh about who to name his child. I don't know if it was a boy or a girl, he knew, but he watched what I did. Right. And he carried our mother's legacy into his new generation. He didn't have to do that. But what was impactful was somebody that he has no memory of, but a legacy that he wants his family to live. So that tradition is something that we're lucky to have. And I want and hope that other people in the community will be able to share and draw some message from. Well, Michael, thank you for, for doing this. And you should continue. One of the things that I've always looked up to you and been proud of is you always try to make a Kiddush Hashem in the world, to sanctify Hashem's name, whether it's through Hatzalah, it's your work in immigration, it's a mayor, and as a father, now a husband, and now a grandparent. Um, you know, Hashem should bless you and Amy and, and your family, just our families with the opportunity to continue to make that Kiddush Hashem in everything that you do. It's really why I wanted to bring you on. I wanted you. other people to be able to hear how a volunteer, okay, through Hatzalah or a mayor, I mean, I don't know, that's more than a volunteer, 
but uh, and 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 through one's professional work, one can really make a big difference in this world. And you do that, and we love you for it, Michael. And you're an amazing older brother. Um, and uh, you can also be you proud. You could also be proud of your younger brother. And 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 truthfully, all kidding aside, other than you're needing a haircut, and we're all grateful that this is audio only. Um, <laughs> you you have inspired the new generation, and you're responsible for about 300 shaduchim and couples and babies that are being born and a proper few number of divorces. But I have to, I, I, I'm excited. Thanks for throwing that in. It's, uh, by the way, it's 324, just the, you know, not that we're counting. But who's yeah. counting? I think yeah. if you do three, you go to heaven, correct? <laughs> so your your brother, the Democrat, will need to make a loan of you when the pearly yeah. gates open up. Um, but, I, you know, Mark, I, I get nachas upstream, downstream, and sidestream. And uh, our mother um, would be uh, Shepping Nachas, listening to the two of us talk of one another. And now you, the audience listening to this, it's your job to emulate and find the points that were of interest to you. And please reach out to me personally if I can add any value to your lives. But Mark, keep, uh, keep doing what you're doing. You're a leader, and I admire you tremendously. Thank you, Mike. I love you, man. Thank you so much for your time. For doing this and thank you all for listening and uh have a good one we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the wildcast subscribe to our show on spotify apple Podcasts, google play or your favorite podcast app if you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.